Hi, this is Kevin McCullough. Thanks for listening to the Christian Outlook podcast, where we cover today's issues from a perspective that honors your Christian faith. Our podcast is brought to you through a partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I trust you'll enjoy. Joining me is Kevin McCullough. He is a talk show host one of our on our sister stations, Salem Media, AM 570 and 970. And, of course, he's a best-selling author. Kevin McCullough, welcome to the program. Hey, Gino. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you. And uh, greetings to the beautiful uh, Denver listening uh, folks. I, I love your part of the country. I've done a lot of stuff at Summit Ministries just south yes. of you at the, uh, Colorado Springs. And just love, just love your region of the world. Yes, you're on in New York City. That's right. And um, well, because you've done so much at, at Summit, you're very familiar with Jeff Myers down there. Yeah. And uh, we've been having some conversations about why biblical justice, you know, why social justice is not biblical justice. And I've noticed um, in in some of the articles that you've been posting at townhall.com, the last three that you've uh, posted, useful idiots, pro-life evangelicals for Biden, why the freedom of conscience is folly and fallacy, Americans to progressives, calm this. You're, you're in, a, in a very real sense, calling out some of um, self-described evangelicals who seem to be missing the point about why bi- why biblical justice is in fact not social justice. Yeah, I think that's kind of the, the overarching idea. But I think that, um, and I'm I got to say, Gino, you know, I don't come entirely at this from pure motives. I I'm a little bit angry with mm-hmm. uh, our brothers uh, that have uh, taken this approach. To how they've communicated the importance of our uh, civic and social activity, particularly as it relates to voting, because they they did not speak in a vacuum. So, in in the column that I wrote about uh, Piper and Keller in particular, we're right, talking freedom about of conscience, yeah, some, a phrase that they coined that I've seen replicated in many many other areas. This freedom of conscience idea. Now, truly, as a biblical. Concept. Of Jesus, I want to be free to act in my conscience, and I want to have ultimate loyalty for my actions to be those as I feel are a correct interpretation of Scripture. That's that's where I want. That's what I think freedom of conscience should mean. That's not what it was coined to mean in the 2020 election cycle. And some of these people that have fairly large pulpits or reach, like a Tim Keller, like a John Piper, I felt like at the very last minute, without much dialogue, kind of punted. Uh, any type of responsibility or any type of leadership at the moment that they were probably uh, most able to give some sort of insight on on what an actual biblical view of what was about to happen in the election could have actually had impact with and really made a difference with. So when you sit back, and in Keller's case, he said um, basically on his Twitter feed over a number of days, and and I engaged him uh, somewhat uh, heatedly, uh, uh, kindly, but but strongly— he basically made the argument that Scripture is not silent on the big moral issues. So he said, uh, we, see, we can see easily from abortion, uh, from the Bible, that abortion is, is an unbiblical and an ungodly uh, act to engage in. Then he went on to say that the Bible, though, is silent when it comes to the wisdom of how to reduce it. I yeah. have a big problem with that in that I don't, I don't know, I can't point you to a chapter and verse where— it says, thus saith the Lord, vote for 
Donald Trump in 2020 and you shall reduce abortion. I don't I don't know of any place in Scripture where that happens to be said, but I do know that Scripture talks about stewardship of our choices, stewardship of our actions, stewardship and thoughtfulness as it pertains to how we interact with the least of these and the most vulnerable. And for all of the larger principles that you can point to, you can come up with a worldview that is truly centrically and, and fundamentally Bible-based and have a and have a very strong biblical leading in terms of what it would lead you to by way of making a political choice in the ballot box. Now, I'm not here to tell anybody the name of a candidate to vote for, but I was very displeased, and I tried to do as much as I could to try to get people to think critically and biblically in the run-up. And sadly, the um, the outcome was different than what I had hoped for. Yeah, I think of the contrast between a Wayne Grudem, who also wrote extensively on the subject, providing much more better clarity, at least in my view, I, of I how to that. how to ideologically sort through these great big difficulties. But I think that that's part of the challenge um, that where they miss the boat is they mischaracterized the argument. The characterization of the argument is to ask and answer a different question, and that is, what is the, according to the Bible, the biblical purpose of government? And the biblical purpose of government is to promote righteousness and to resist or prevent wickedness. And that that's in the broadest terms possible, Kevin McCullough. And I think that, again, when we're asking and answering the question, where do we go to get sensible information about these important issues? Like you said, so many people have this great big uh, pulpit and the ability to influence, but somehow, some way, we have to ask people to look further and farther, don't you think? I I think on some level, and let me point out one other thing, because that's a tremendous um, point that you just emphasized about the purpose of government from a biblical perspective. But someone like a Keller or even Piper would come back to you and say, but, you know, uh, God doesn't promise that the American government's going to be anything that uh, withstands or lasts or anything else. And I would say the scripture also points to another uh, role for we, the individual living within the community of the church, has to play. And that is what role in government are we? There's a fundamental understanding, I believe, and sometimes it's willful and sometimes it's just kind of ignorance without any malice behind it. But I think that there's a lack of understanding that it is truly we, the people, who have been empowered by the founding documents to take on the governance of our country. And when we elect a president, we're not electing a, a tyrant or a king or an authoritarian. We're electing a servant who Correct. is sent there, similar to our representatives in Congress, to do the expressed will of what we, the people, empower them to do. That puts a lot more onus, by the way, on the church and particularly on the shepherds of the church, because we need to be teaching not just biblical respect and obedience to authority, but we need to be talking as much about how to rule justly and to love mercy in the stewardship of the running of our own country. And I think this is one of the keys, because if we ask and we answer the question, how are we going to not erode the freedoms that are enunciated in the Constitution? And in the last three articles that that you've written, you've actually been talking about the dangers of what of people like you and people like me announced before the election. Hey, do you value religious freedom? Do you value secure borders? Do you value, and then fill, fill in the, the blank, 
um, then these are some of the important issues that we have to vote on. I was reading your articles at townhall.com, why uh, the freedom of conscience is folly and fallacy, Americans to progressives, this latest one that you've just written on uh, Americans to progressives, call this. You've been talking a lot about the Equality Act, the, the absolute catastrophe of it happening in uh, passing in the House. Let me just bluntly ask you, what do you think of its chances are in the Senate. We know that this president will sign it into law. Are, are you optimistic, pessimistic, or would you call yourself realistic about how we get to go forward? Well, I think a lot of that is going to be yet determined by how aggressive the party that controls both of the houses uh, gets. And what we are going to be, what we are going to be dealing with is um, a, a big question to be answered, and that is, what are the Democrats going to do with the filibuster rule? Because uh-huh. normally the Republicans with uh, with a 50-51 minority would be able to hold off something that is non-budgetary like the Equality Act. The challenge here will be, of course, that you've got um, uh, many now in the Senate, including Chuck Schumer, who is the uh, – the Senate leader, saying that uh, they want to do away with the filibuster altogether. And if they're able to do that, then really the Republicans' hands will be tied. Now, let's assume for the moment that goodwill prevails and they don't do that. Mm-hmm. I think that we've seen the end of the Equality Act for this uh, year and probably for this election cycle. I, don't, I wouldn't imagine them bringing it back in 2022 in an election year when the optics are going to be even worse. But, Gino... What's amazing about this and what we were talking about in the last segment is that our choices in the ballot box absolutely matter. Mm -hmm. And I don't want my almost six-year-old daughter to be uh, at some point in time in her near uh, future be forced to compete uh, with and against uh, boys in athletic um, combat or competition. I don't want. I don't want her having to rebound against boys who are twice her size and twice her bone mass. I certainly don't want them in her shower or in her locker room. And so we have got uh, some some real challenges to what fundamentally is just reality. Uh, when you and the thing about it is, a lot of people that voted for Joe Biden uh, would not have believed you, or maybe didn't believe, or didn't even know or realize that such an issue was on the table. And you, when you had people like Tim Keller and John Piper mm-hmm. kind of uh, speak down about uh, Donald Trump to the degree that they did and say that there were things that made him equally um, compromised in the uh, morals arena, well, first of all, th- I'm not sure that that's true, only from the standpoint that you had a 47-year record of Joe Biden's mm-hmm. record and Kamala Harris's for as long as she's been in public life, as opposed to the four years of Donald Trump. But at the end of the day, his four years, regardless of whatever his personal life may have looked like prior to that, and we've never elected a perfect president yet, Gino, I, I don't right. know if anybody's told you that, but um, even George Washington had problems uh, back in the day. Uh, th- th- you're going to have people who are flawed. So the question becomes, how do you deal with those flaws and how does the how do the flaws enter the arena of governance. And with Donald Trump in my lifetime, and I'm 51, we have not had a more honorable president towards people of faith. We've not had a more honorable president towards the unborn 
We've had not a more fierce defender of the of the persecuted Christian on planet Earth, and we've not had a better defender of the family in in general. And when you compare that to Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, who want to make abortion legal even after the birth of the child, when you that's called infanticide. That's called that's what we call infanticide. Exactly, murder. Um, But when you when you're actually saying that. when you when you actually look at this and they say, well, we want we want anatomical and biological men to be in the locker rooms with your daughters, and we don't want you to have the freedom of speech to to criticize it, and we don't want you to have the freedom of law to change it. You've entered a different universe than what you elected your last set of leaders from, and that's that's my greatest fear is that Christians will wake up at some point in time and they will say, well, wait a minute, I didn't want any of this stuff to happen. Well, what they didn't do to prevent it from coming about was as much of an influence in bringing it about as voting for it directly. Yeah, and I, that's what you have to do as a believer. You have to say, what is the stewardship of this action, and how does it represent what I want the country to become? Well, and I know at your article at townhall.com, you talked about some of the pushback that might be coming down the peak, not from from people who would self-identify as people of faith, but you talk about Americans who say, wait, my gas is going to go to $5 a gallon, 700,000 people a week are unemployed, the abuse of the executive order, the devaluation of our currency. Um, and, and again, if mutilating children doesn't isn't a line that you can draw in the sand where do you draw the line so i guess there's these two great big groups the people of faith the people not of faith what do you anticipate the pushback will be from both of those groups well i think that it's going to depend upon a lot of uh, communication from people like you and i who have the opportunity to speak the truth and to do so consistently but people have to wake up the guarantee of America's future is not is not based on her past. It is based on what the present is and how engaged people are and how educated they are on what their choices mean. And what we have lost altogether is any media objectivity that would try to inform you of, in, in a fair or honorable way, what the differences truly are. So, for instance, Um, Down at the uh, southern border right now, you have a border patrol who has been instructed by the White House to not engage with the press. But further, you have a press who's going along with it. Further, you have a press who's who's saying, oh, well, if the White House doesn't want us to ask questions of the border patrol, I guess I won't ask the border patrol questions about what's going on. And what's the result of that, Gino? They they killed Trump over Mm -hmm. uh, a very short intermediate intermediate period of time where a few kids were in custody uh, in the uh, f- federal uh, custody after they came across the border. Uh, but now they have more than 13,000 children mm-hmm. in cages that are literally, truly uh, chain link cages. These aren't it's not it's not a, a, a turn of phrase or some sort of visual picture today in the Epoch Times and in other news outlets across the board. You can go see pictures where up to 400 children apiece are in these are in these um, enclosed structures. This isn't, in other words, it, it's, it's not about the narrative, it's about the facts. Mm-hmm. And until we begin to educate and discuss and base things on those facts, I think that we have a really dark period of American history coming.
Yeah, and that, that's one of the things that I find so disturbing, not just what you said, but that facts and evidence are now characterized as tools or bludgeons um, that people who embrace uh, white supremacy. In, in other words, it's this abandonment of facts, evidence, and reason. And it seems to me that 13,000 children in a cage isn't the best way to construct a policy concerning immigration. Do you anticipate that things like this COVID virus, as hopefully we're, we're, we're winding down, what do you see driving the policy? Oh, gosh, we, we don't have time, but quickly. Well, I think that what we have to do is we have to just remember that we have an opportunity to speak to the government and to say we are ultimately who you answer to. And in every policy, we have to exercise, we have to be willing to exercise that stewardship at this time. Right. And I think you're exactly right where we say to the government, no, we don't answer to you. You answer to us. And then Correct. we really do have to hold them accountable. And we need to McCullough- that will know that and realize it and say it from time to time in the pulpit. <laughs> Thanks so much for being my guest. Again, if you want to know more about Kevin McCullough, I, I would encourage you uh, go to his website, go to town hall, read the articles, your website quickly, Kevin McCullough. The BingeThinker.com. TheBingeThinker.com. Kevin McCullough, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Christian Outlook. Our program is coming to you today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you enjoy our podcast, take a moment. And tell a friend to subscribe today.